What is up, everybody, and welcome to the All-NBA Podcast presented by DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app. I'm your host, Adam Marez, and I'm joined by my esteemed colleague, Tim Legler. Tim, full slate of NBA games, but we're going to focus in on a handful of them that involve some title contenders. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, man. I, anytime I get a chance to watch some heavyweights go at it, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in a good mood because that was my content last night to cover on the air. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. So you had you had some of the teams that are uh, bullies on the block going at it last night. It was fun. Definitely some and some bully ball to be played, especially in that Celtics 76ers game. That's going to be one of the big things I talk about today, or at least that I'm interested in and want to ask you about. We're going to break down the Sixers and the Celtics game last night. And we're going to look at it primarily, although not exclusively, from a Celtics perspective. The Celtics now drop two games against top defenses. Does that tell us something about the makeup of the team, the shortcomings of the team, or is that just early season sort of rhythm? We're also going to break down Warriors and Nuggets last night, even though that was a shorthanded game for, for the Warriors. It gave us a chance to look at the depth of the Warriors, which is one of the big questions. So we're going to talk about them and what Legler takes away from some of those young, new pieces. Uh, we're also going to break down Jonathan Kaminga, who is – one of Legler's most interesting players coming into the year. We're continuing the series of looking at pivotal players. Jonathan Kaminga is on the docket today, so we're going to go do a deep dive on him. And then to end the show today, we're going to talk about the Grizzlies, the Lakers, the Cavs, three teams that have underperformed out the gate. Do you need to be concerned? Um, don't forget to review, subscribe, uh, whatever you get your podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it is, and on YouTube, of course, because we're going live. This is going to be like a TV show. This this uh, this podcast that we're doing, you can listen to it and download it on the go, or you can tune in live every day right on YouTube and check us out, participate in the chat, throw us some questions, and just uh, be a part of the show. But let's start, Legler. Last night, we get a matchup between two of the three heavyweights, I would say, out east, the Boston Celtics visiting the 76ers, Celtics coming off of a loss. This one was a three-point game, but it wasn't really a three-point game. This was a 15-point game with three minutes to go. The, the Sixers handled this game for most of it. What was your big takeaway when you watched that matchup? Yeah, I think a couple of things for me. I think, first of all, I, you know, we're going to talk more Boston, but just to start off with Philadelphia because you know they, they were the team that won the game. I am buying much more into this team now that they've made this trade. I just think that, that everything – flows better for them offensively they're not as stagnant it's not the ball's not over dribbled decisions are more decisive uh the, everything's quicker they just yep. seem like they're enjoying themselves more they, the chemistry's better they've added some guys that i, that I really think are going to help them with their length and defensive uh pressure on the perimeter and so let's start with that that was impressive for them to play that well and really to play against a team like boston it's that good offensively and to do what they did to them you know you talk about Sixers fully in control of the game. Some weird stuff happened at the end, and, and you end up getting kind of dicey. But I'll go another step. Boston had, by my count, eight to ten uncontested breakaway layups and dunks off of either turnovers or long threes where Sixers didn't rotate back defensively. And the reason I bring that up, Adam, they only got to 103. Yep. And they were given, they were given like 10. Yeah. So you're talking about a team, really, really, they performed at a level in this game that should have resulted in a low to mid-90s number. And the way they've been humming offensively, that's very impressive on the part of the Sixers. It's also a little bit eye-opening on the part of the Celtics when they take on this particular type team and, and struggle the way that they did offensively. It's interesting for me on both sides. 
The Celtics came into the week, I think, with a 124 offensive rating. That was number one with a bullet in the NBA. They go up against two of the best defenses in the NBA, the, the Timberwolves and now uh, the 76ers. And that number drops. They're all the way down to sixth in offensive rating. Early season volatility with the numbers. But it just goes to show that even that great high-powered offense runs into a couple defenses and you see the flaws. The flaws start to get exposed. And I'm with you. We could talk about some of the missed open threes throughout this game. We could talk about, you know, bounces here or there. But when you watch that game, that's not what this was about. I did not think Boston did a good job at all of getting downhill or into the paint in this game. And it was very eye-opening how little they could get into the paint against a good defense with a lot of length. So that, to me, was one of the things that stood out. But if you want to stick with the Sixers real quick, you mentioned something big. They're playing with joy, which I want to get to. They, they seem to be enjoying themselves more than last year. But more right. importantly, they're playing with pace. One, 101 possessions per game right now. That's 12th in the NBA. They were at 97 last year, 27. So they go from one of the slowest teams in the NBA last year, fourth slowest, to above average now. And that's really noticeable. That Joel Embiid, usually you want to run against him. The 76ers won the transition battle last night. Yeah, and what, what's impressive is and some of these don't show up as like, something you'd see as a tangible stat for pace or fast break points or transition points or anything like that. Yeah. There are a number of plays, and I did a touch screen on this last night on the air. There are a number of plays that that happen now with Tyrese Maxey and, and the fact that he's the focal point, right? If Embiid's not making something happen, it's Maxey. He's the, and when Embiid was out of the game in the fourth quarter, it was all Maxey. Everything yeah. was through him, but he makes these plays, Adam, throughout the course of the game that are so important offensively. Here's an example. You know, you, you you go into a beat in the post, and then Maxie's kind of hanging. The ball comes back out. And on the catch, he's attacking a closeout defender with such a burst and speed to get into the gap, and it doesn't necessarily translate into to a shot. Now, he is incredible with his array of runners and floaters that he shoots going full speed, and he had several of those last night that mattered. But even the plays that he doesn't, when he gets into that gap with that kind of speed, what he does in terms of forcing a defensive reaction and then the kick out and what that means to Tobias Harris, what that means to Kelly Oubre, what that means to any of their three-point shooters that are spaced out in the opposite corner, you can't really put a, a price tag on it and it doesn't show up in the stat sheet because it doesn't necessarily mean it's direct kick out for a basket. It means right. you have forced the defense to rotate to such an extent that when it does come out, those guys are operating in a comfort zone of space. And maybe it's a 2 on one on the weak side. And so Maxie's not even involved statistically in what's about to happen. Created the entire thing. Difference being when that was James Harden and that ball would come out, what was going to happen? He was going to put it back down on the floor. He was going to pound it. He was going to stay in a stationary place, call somebody over for a ball screen, or ISO into a step back three. That's not what Maxie's doing. Everything is purposeful. Catch it downhill, attack, use my speed, create, force defenses to move. And I saw so much of that in the game that just makes their offense flow so much better and look like more of a viable offense that can actually go up against the big boys like Boston and Milwaukee. And it's an identity. And we talked about this last week when we broke down Tyrese Maxey and we talked about the 76ers a little bit more in depth, but it was on my notes for this game because it stood out. Maxie is spotting up off of Joel Embiid post-ups in particular, but really all game. He's spotting up three, four feet behind the three-point line. And what that does is, one, he's been shooting with deep shots with more confidence. But two, 
if the defense runs him off the line, he gets ahead of of speed and is running into the catch. And he had 11 fourth quarter points. And all of them or all but two of them might have come off of that, either spotting up deep or running into the catch. And now Embiid's putting pressure on the paint with obviously with his dominance on the block. And now Maxi is putting pressure both at the three-point line and back on the paint. So the team is constantly in rotation. Uh, The defense is constantly in rotation. So to me, it's little things when you go from one coach to another, it's little things that are like, this is what we're going to emphasize. I feel like the team emphasizing now getting Maxi going downhill off of those has made, has opened up so many other things for the 76ers offense where it just looks natural and it looks smooth. Huge. Yeah. Keep going. Finish up. Nope. That was it. Okay. So, so and, and along those lines, Tyrese Maxey is a significantly better catch-and-shoot three-point shooter than James Harden was. James Harden yeah. doesn't like to catch-and-shoot threes. James Harden, look, he was obviously an incredibly dangerous three-point shooter. He led the league in scoring how many times? But it was usually off of a rhythm dribble. He likes to put it down and go rocker step back and forth and get yeah. you off balance and then go between his legs and then that hard step one side or the other to get that shot off. Maxey is a – above 40% catch and shoot three point shooter. And that just means the opportunities that he's going to get and the way he makes you pay are different. He had a play last night where they ran some action on the right side. The ball ended up coming to him, then over to the left side and Tobias Harris had it. Tyrese Maxey was at about 35 feet. Cause I stopped it to like, take a look. You had Derek White and Drew Holiday on the floor and both of those guys inside the three point line. So when the ball came back out to Maxey the third time, he had 10 to 12 feet to get to those guys. He still beat them to the area below the foul line and then shot a floater yeah. over Porzingis yeah. Like yeah. to end the possession that way. It's special. In a league full of quick guys, his, his speed stands out. It's just a different level. And the, just the, the buoyancy, the energy, the positivity, man, do they need that. And look, I'm also going to say this. Kelly Oubre – he couldn't have gone to a better team. They desperately needed a big wing that could get his own shot. And he's been great so far. He'll go through some stretches. He can be inconsistent. What a stretch start for them to the season. And they have a guy now that's capable on any night of getting you 20 points. And you don't have to run sets for him. He just He's a natural yeah. scorer. So that's something that Doc Rivers didn't have at his disposal that Nick Nurse does. And it's something that fits very well with this team. This is why I love this show, Legs. Because I'm sitting here, I'm both the host and the audience, you know, as we do this every time I throw to you. And last week, you're talking about Kelly Oubre in particular and the pressure he's putting on the rim just as like this third option attacking. And I thought in this game, I'm watching it and I'm like, there it is. That's what Legs is talking about. There's that pressure from that other guy just constantly in attack mode. And I'm going to go one further and then we can get on to the Celtics here. But, you know, you add Batum to this, you know, now he's playing – You've got Covington, who looked really good, I thought, last night, made a bunch of just winning plays. They look huge on the wing. They have now between Oubre and Covington and Batum, they have a lot of length. And one of the reasons I thought Boston did not get into the paint last night, obviously, Joel Embiid is inside there, but you've also got all these arms. So not only do you have to navigate all the wing length, but if you get there, then you have Embiid waiting for you. That was hard to do. And I just thought Boston punted on it you know they did they weren't even trying down the stretch they were trying to get step backs and sidesteps and different things but Batum I'm just curious what you think he adds to this roster and what what he gives them that maybe they didn't have before 
I've absolutely loved Nick Batum. I have for a long time. People criticized him a lot because he got a contract that he was probably not worthy of at the time because, right. you know, yep. he was he was scoring at a different rate, but he's not a scorer. And he got paid. And, and when that happened, a lot of people started to just over scrutinize what he is and what he does. He is an incredibly conscientious defender, great length, consistent three point shooter, been in a ton of important games great fit and i don't know if you saw it last night but it was kind of scary he actually banged his hand on the backboard trying to track somebody down on a breakaway came down immediately pointed at the bench and i've been in that boat i knew what that meant that thing is dislocated you can tell when a guy reacts that way so then they go they watch him he's going to the to the bench he goes into the tunnel and the camera's following and finally he holds his hand up and he's walking north and south, and that finger was pointing east and west, okay? <laughs> that thing was all over the place. And and I'm watching Kevin Johnson, the trainer, who was actually my trainer when I played in Washington, is walking him back. And I'm going, oh, man, of course, he comes out, but he tapes those things together, and he and he plays yeah. second half. It's on his right hand, too. I don't think he made another shot after that. Can't imagine yeah. the swelling he's going to have in there today. But so important. Covington is a guy that was very popular when he played there the first time. Again, wants to guard, likes the challenge of it. And also, by the way, you know, you mentioned Embiid, last line of defense. Every year he's going to be in the, in the uh, he's going to be a nominee for defensive player of the year. Yeah. You also have guys like Paul Reed, who is just all energy as his backup, right? All over right. the place, offensive glass, running the floor. And then Patrick Beverly, a guy that's just a pest. He's all over the place, loose balls, deflecting guys from behind. So he's not that length that these other guys are but equally irritating defensively. So now you've got the makeup of what could be a special defensive group and a team that finally might have figured out their offensive flow. And here's the last point I want to make. I also, just in watching Tyrese Maxey and observing him, okay, and, then, and this is all with Harden for the most part, I don't think Tyrese Maxey's guy is going to run from the light when, the, when they need him the way that Harden did. I don't think he's going to wilt under pressure the way that Harden did. I think Tyrese Maxey's going to embrace those moments when they get into those series. When you got to have 25 out of him, he's going to be there, I think. And it's not going to be because he runs from it. It's going to be because he has an off night. Harden got became a different guy mentally, and it dragged their team down. I don't think Maxey's going to do that to this team. So the confidence level they have all year knowing, hey, we get into the playoffs this time, we're not going to have guys not show up. Right. And, and that, I think, was what Maxie's given this team, this city. He's so popular. One basket out of him is worth three to any other player on the team. The way that that crowd reacts, that's how popular he is. Well-deserved. So, I'm listen, man, I'm, I'm effusive in my praise of Philly today. And uh, I, think, I think it's justified. I'm very excited about what this could be for them. I think they're early season winners. You know, them and Minnesota are the two teams to me that have impressed the most, you know, relative to expectation. Both teams, you had questions coming in. They could break either way. I mean, Philadelphia, you didn't know if it could break the bad way with the changes that they made. And it's been the opposite. They look like the best right. version of themselves. Um, but let's talk about the Celtics, who if we would have done this on the Celtics last Friday, we might be talking about them with effusive praise. But they dropped two in a row. What If we just talk about last night or start from last night, one of the interesting things about that game in that matchup, Al Horford has always struggled against Joel Embiid. Embiid's just, he's huge. He's, he's, uh, Horford's a positional defender. He's a smart defender. He has length. Embiid has more length, more size, and just doesn't seem to be bothered by him. Last night, they put Drew Holiday on him. Little guys guarding big guys, to me, it was always my least favorite thing. 
because little guys get away with a lot more physicality. You can bring the help from the big guys around. You got Porzingis now that can fly around and help. And I actually thought it was an effective strategy for the moments that they could do it. But I don't know if it's a sustainable strategy. And maybe it hints at, okay, you look at that Celtics roster. Do they have the horses for a Joel Embiid type matchup? That was one of the things that stood out to me in this one is the size disparity up front had them going to that Drew Holiday defense. What did you make of that? And, and what do you make of that? point as a whole well in general since they've been playing against Joel Embiid um and it was you know Brad Stevens first and now Missoula uh they double him less than any team I've seen and they're they're so willing to live with single coverage on him and and not just in the post like these plays where he and he loves to catch it at the elbows or the center of the foul line look that's a difficult place to double team don't get me wrong because you've got the whole floor at your disposal but here's the thing Joel Embiid as great as he is, has not proven he can beat you as a playmaker. Right. And so I don't understand the methodology in playing a, 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 playing, uh, a guy like Al Horford against him straight up. Al Horford, I love the way he competes. He's an undersized center, and he's super undersized against Joel Embiid. And yeah. he's in such a comfort zone with that mid-range jumper because it's not contested again, by, right. by Al Horford. It's just not. Even Robert Williams who would probably be better in that situation because a little bit longer, a little quicker off his feet and elevates more. But but he was he's off of him six, eight feet because Embiid puts one dribble down, puts his head to the rim from the foul line. It's impossible not to foul him. So you're giving him cushion. He is an elite-level mid-range jump shooter, but he's not an elite-level playmaker. So I don't understand if they're gonna if they're gonna go this way against Joel Embiid. And look, man, there were moments like they had that team beat last year in that series. They had them beat game five at home, game five on the road. You got an opportunity to beat that team. You've got a lead in the fourth quarter and you don't get it done. So they're very close in large part because of the way they play Joel Embiid. And I I don't know if that's going to continue going forward, but I don't like the strategy because I want to force him to find the floor, find who's open on this particular possession and deliver it with velocity to a guy that, in the cradle so he can get off a three-point shot. I just don't trust that Embiid is capable of doing that yet, and Boston is allowing him to kind of operate how he wants to offensively. I think it's a losing formula against Philadelphia. I thought two seasons ago the Celtics had a defensive identity for sure, and I feel like they've, they're have they an offensive team now, and they have some good defenders. You bring in Drew Holiday, you know, he's obviously a great defender. But that's one of the things I wondered even just watching them was, was that an intimidating defensive performance from Boston? I don't think, I don't know that it was. No. So what do you make of the Celtics team in that in that way? When you look at the broad strokes of them, they're a pretty offensive team. They love to ISO that's and they nice. have so many great offensive players. But I wonder if they've lost some of the things that got them to the finals and got them to the conference finals. Well, I think one thing that, and I've, this has been a recurring theme for this team for years, uh, is they're two three-point centric. And they yeah. were again in this game, 47 threes. You know, and they had six different players take six or more three point shots. And the reason that that's kind of jumps out to me, you know, Philly, they took 34 threes. They were getting them up. They only had two guys take right. that many. And the reason is because guys get a license to shoot, right? Yeah. And you, have to, you earn it. Now, look, don't get me wrong. I think Boston has more legitimate catch-and-shoot three-point threats or off-the-dribble three-point threats than probably any other team in the Eastern Conference. But when when that's the shot that it looks like you're hunting, I think you're helping people out. 
because you've got a number of guys that are so good at getting past the initial defender, and they have guys that can make plays with the pass off the dribble. And multiple driving kicks on the same possession are rare for them. It's You might get one, or you might get a guy turn the corner, go all the way to the rim, or you get a three-point shot. And to take 47 threes, where it seems like everybody on the roster can shoot that shot whenever they want to, I think you're doing a disservice to how good you could be offensively. Now, look, obviously they're a highly, highly rated offensive team. That's I'm not saying that's the case every night. In this particular game against this defense, they did. Look, maybe some of it had to do with what they're seeing back there with Embiid. Right, he's lurking. I can't imagine what that looks like. You know, he, he, his ability to go track people, maybe that affects the way you think, and you're more likely to pull the trigger early on a three. But I just thought, in general, their offense last night felt one-dimensional. They, they were trying to hunt that shot or take the first good, quick three they had, and I think you're bailing out a team like Philadelphia that's, that's playing hard and has some length defensively. Well, I wonder if the team is two-dimensional, and that is drive and kick. So drive to the basket, you got all these great ISO players and, and, and you know, pick and roll, get downhill and attack, and then kick, and you have all these good spot-up shooters with a green light to let it go. But the last two games, they played against great rim protection. And so one of those elements gets taken away, and then there wasn't the counter. To your point, there wasn't the counter to be able to play through something else. They average the second fewest passes per game as a team. Only the Dallas Mavericks, who obviously the ball's in Luka's hand almost the entirety of the game, only they pass the ball less than Boston does. Boston, coming into the weekend, had the number one offense. I just wonder if that is a thing where it's built to have great regular season success because most teams don't have that type of defense and attention to detail and, and all those things. But I wonder if it is too, to your point, one-dimensional, where if you are able to take away one of those elements, the drive and kick or the three-point shot, they they don't have a whole lot of other things to them. That's my read on, on Boston early. I like it. And I, you know, one of the things I've said about Brown and Tatum repeatedly is that they're they kind of operate independently of each other. Like what they yeah. do, um, as great as they are, it's not really something where they're actually utilizing their skill sets together at the same time, right? That's not the way they work. It's one guy or the other. They're on opposite sides of the floor a lot. You don't see them running action where they're both kind of involved at the same time to put pressure on defenses like some other great pairings and tandems in this league. So if that's how they're going to operate, and both of those guys are going to get you know green light and they're going to put the ball down a lot, and they're going to try – and they're elite-level offensive players. To your point, when you've got a Joel Embiid back there, you've got a Brooke Lopez back there, you've got a Giannis back there, and these are the teams we're talking about. Those are the top two teams, in my opinion, you're going to have to beat. Even a team, if you want to throw Cleveland in the mix, sure. right? Look at what they've got. Look at the length they've got with Jared Allen and Mobley, right? These yeah. teams are equipped to deal with that kind of, of basketball. So for me, if you can, if you can, you know, do a good job of making sure their threes are contested and hold them to a below average night from the three-point line, and you've got that back line of defense you've at least got a chance against this team. Um, look, they've got they've got so much talent and so many weapons, and, and it, it's really far more, I think, than either Milwaukee or Philadelphia, just guys that can really hurt you offensively in a given night. But they've got to click, man. There's got to be rhythm to it. The ball's got to move. And, yeah. and you've got to force defenses to guard more than one action. And I didn't think they did a whole lot of that in this game. So that is the, for the Boston Celtics, again, none of this is, I don't think, damning, 
But it is, I would say, a year plus trend under Joe Missoula of an emphasis on a very specific type of basketball that when it works, it has great success. And over the course of an 82-game season, the numbers are going to be eye-popping. But it looks really bad against certain defenses and when a team really emphasizes specific things. And those are things that they're going to run into in a playoff. So, you know, they got 72 more games this season to kind of work through those those kinks. Um, but that, to me, sets the table for what they're looking at as they uh, as they go through this year. Do you have any other notes on the Celtics you want to get to that you think are particularly interesting? Um, I think, you know, I think there are times still that they've got to get a little bit more consistent with the production they get and the roles of some of their bench guys. Now, sometimes your, your top six can be so good and so versatile that that actually becomes your bench. Like some of your starters are your bench guys because they come back into the game in a different spot. And I think they rely on some of that, but definitely the spotlight is going to be on some of them. And if I'm, if I'm playing against them, I'm definitely going to do everything I can to make sure that some of those guys are going to have to beat me. Look, Boston is going to be there all year. A lot of people think this team's going to win a championship or certainly, you know, win the Eastern conference. I think that that is going to be an interesting conversation throughout the season as we watch Milwaukee evolve and and what that could potentially become when Giannis and Lillard kind of hit their peak after playing together for a while. Right. What what's the ceiling now on Philly? You know, going in, I didn't put them in the league with these two teams. They were on a different tier for me, and I'm looking at them early. And now that they've made the trade, I just view them differently. Yeah. I sit down and watch them, and I think, man, with this weapon in Embiid, as special as he is. And with what Max, I think Max is going to be an all-star this year. With what Tyrese Maxey looks like and adding Oubre and Tobias Harris looks super comfortable and adding this length in these defenders, how can you not be so much more excited about the 76ers than you were a week ago? Um, so I think right now for me, there's three teams in the, in the mix to win the Eastern Conference. And I think then you're going to find, find out who's on the next shelf. Is that, is that right. Cleveland? Is it the Knicks? Is it Miami? Like Who do you think right. is there? Because I think these three teams are the cream of the crop in the East, and it's it's not really debatable. I agree with you. I came into the year with two teams in that tier. I got three of them now with 76ers joining. Let's um let's take our first break. On the other side, the Golden State Warriors are another team that I'm not sure what tier they belong into. They played a game last night against the Denver Nuggets, very close one. We're gonna break that down as well as the Warriors roster and Jonathan Kaminga himself. We'll do that on the other side. Guys, want to tell you about DraftKings Sportsbook. NBA fans, the wait is over. Basketball is back. DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA, is celebrating with an unbeatable offer. New customers can get $200 instantly in bonus bets from throwing down $5 on the NBA. Win or lose, it doesn't matter. You'll start the season with an instant dub. And with DraftKings parlays, everyone gets a shot at a bigger payout. You can stream together bets from the same game, make a same game parlay, one of my favorite things to do, just having fun. Or you can bet across multiple games, maybe put you know, a little bit of action on every single game on any given night slate. And if they all hit, you've got an even bigger payout. Basketball is more fun when you're in on the action. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code ALLNBA. You see the promo code right above us at all times, that little bug on the screen, ALLNBA. New customers can get $200 in bonus bets instantly for betting just $5. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook with that promo code ALLNBA. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY, that's 467-369. In Connecticut, uh, help is available for pro, uh, for gambling problems. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. 
Please play responsible. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort, licensed partner Golden, uh, Golden Nugget Lake Charles, 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 160 hours after issuance. See sportsbook.draftkings.com slash basketball terms for eligibility and deposit restrictions and responsible gaming resources. All right, back here on the All NBA Podcast. Don't forget to hit that like button if you're enjoying the show. Hit the subscribe button if you enjoy this type of basketball analysis and want to be part of it every single day. As the show goes on, we're going to be adding more and more interactive elements, mailbags, chances for you to ask Legler and myself uh, questions about your favorite players, your favorite teams, or some current events that are going on across the NBA. So you're going to want to be tuned in here. Treat it like your favorite television show. You set your, your clocks, you hit that little alarm button, and you'll never miss an episode. Last night, another one of the games that we saw was the Warriors visiting the Denver Nuggets. I don't know, and I'm curious what you think, but I don't know how interesting this game was from a reading into either of these two teams. The Warriors were playing their eighth game in an eighth different city. The Nuggets were playing their seventh game in 11 days. This looked like a slog to me where both teams were pretty exhausted. It was an ugly basketball game. The Nuggets eked it out. What's your big takeaway and your overarching thought from this game? Well, I would disagree a little bit in this from this standpoint. From uh, In terms of Denver's perspective, I agree. That's not something, if you had never seen the Denver Nuggets play and you watched them last night, you weren't coming away like super impressed. Like, oh, mm. this team won a championship. It was an average to below average night for the Denver Nuggets. And they ended up having, you know, by far the best player on the court, and he took over the game. He was unguardable. Jokic controlled everything when they had to have it, and they end up getting the win. I did take some positive things from Golden State in this game, now, and here's why. Two main reasons. First of all, last year, Golden State really dropped off the map defensively. When you look at the teams that have contended for championships or won championships in this Steph Curry era, when they finally got to that level – Every year, this team was top five in defensive rating. Some years, they led the league in defensive right. rating, okay? Last year, fell all the way down below the middle of the pack in the NBA. Major point of emphasis in training camp for this team. They looked good last night defensively. They were competing. They were playing tougher. There weren't the blown assignments and the easy stuff they were giving up a year ago. So I was very encouraged that they could be in a game when they didn't play particularly well offensively, that they against this team that is so good offensively, they were able to stay in the game and keep this to one possession game for a good portion of the fourth quarter. Very encouraging. The second area that they needed to improve, turnovers. And Steve Kerr, when I talked to him before the season, you know, he made a great statement. He said, we are not good enough to turn the ball over like the way, the way we did last year and win anymore because we're just not right. that team anymore. So when you turn the ball over 16, 18, 20 times, and they still could win because of the offensive greatness of their top guys, he said we're past that point. That is specifically why they targeted Chris Paul. And whether you like the fit or don't like the fit, and there's still some things I think are probably uncomfortable for him in this particular type style, they had nine turnovers. Nine turnovers last year was middle of the second quarter for the Warriors. They had nine <laughs> yeah. turnovers. Right? They had nine turnovers yeah. for the entire game. And Chris Paul – has gone on this incredible run of, of, with assists to zero turnovers. Like, he, he has been exactly what they wanted him to be. And it's it it means the shot quality is better. And when you have shooters like this, you got to get that thing up on the glass. You can't turn it over. So I think for, in two areas that they were targeting to improve 
Last night, they were significantly better. That's an encouraging sign to be on the road to play that team that way when you don't play well offensively and you're still in the game with a chance to win late. So here's my question on that, because I love the point, and, it, and nine turnovers is really low for an NBA team. Their identity has been to pass the ball a lot. Ball movement, they are a ball movement team. There is You can draw a straight line between lots of ball movement and turnovers, and so it has always been – you know, the idea of we got to cut down our turnovers to me has always been, well, it's going to come at the expense of moving the ball. I just think those two things move in parallel. You can try to be good, you know, better. Do you think that the emphasis of not turning the ball over and obviously with the addition of Chris Paul, does that meaningfully change their identity in a way that they have not proven to win before? No, not necessarily. Like, I, you know, I'm still trying to figure out this Chris Paul fit and he's going to have some nights where he doesn't really do much offensively in terms of the score because of this of the way they're spaced out and there's not a lot of ball screens that they rely on it's it's absolutely give it up move cut for the benefit of the next guy put pressure on people that way he's never played that way so it's going to be different for him here's where i think it's it's paying off the turnovers i'm talking about in the past have been just wild careless turnovers yeah right they just literally like you can't even believe what you're watching sometimes the way that they can chuck the ball around the gym and just allow teams to not have to guard them on that possession. So now there's a number of possessions in the course of the game where that ball, and it's not necessarily initially coming up the floor. It's not Chris Paul directing an offense traditionally like we see in the league, like he's done his whole career. That's not what they look like. I'm talking about within the possession, when the there's nothing there initially, when they run the guard splits and they run Steph and Clay and the action and they're trying to get something off a quick pick and roll to Draymond, nothing there. Now it comes back to Chris Paul. His ability, now we're under 10 on the shot clock, his ability to then make sure they get a quality look out of that because he organizes them or he runs a ball screen with great ball security and makes sure that that ball is controlled until the shot is taken, that's what I'm talking about. Within the possession, not necessarily affecting their pace up the floor or even at the initial first 10 to 12 seconds, which is when they're really dangerous, they got really careless as that shot clock wound down to 10. That's when you'd start to see things that were just not feasible offensively that they were trying. This is where Chris Paul directly helps them. You know, I want to go back to the defense now. You know, they're starting five, especially when they have Draymond there, obviously when they have Draymond there. But Kevon Looney is a really good defender. He's one of the, in my opinion, one of the better defensive bigs in all of the in the NBA. You know, Clay Thompson obviously knows what he's doing. Andrew Wiggins, that's a group that has played together. But it's the guys off the bench to me that are, you know, are these defenders. Now, Gary Payton, the second, wasn't there last night. He's a phenomenal defender. He was out as well as Draymond. And they get contributions from their bench players. Trace Jackson Davis, uh, Moses Moody, Jonathan Kaminga. Those guys, I thought, looked good defensively. What did you see? This was an extended look, more than we usually get, of those guys. What did you make of that supporting cast, the others, not named Chris Paul? No, I agree. They, they, listen, this this group need desperately needed more minutes out of athletic legs and yeah. with some length. And those three guys you mentioned all have it. Moody's got great wingspan. Kaminga's long and athletic. Um, they 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 affect the game. Now, I still think there's another level for Kaminga. We're going to do a little bit of a, of a bigger discussion yeah. on him in a second that I haven't seen. He's better than he was two years ago. I still think there's a lot of stride there defensively because he just has the physical tools. He should be a guy that can really be a difference maker, and he's not all the time yet. 
but I like what I'm seeing. And even a guy like Saric, right? So Saric is yeah. so cerebral. He's so cerebral defensively with his body positioning. Now, look, he got caught in the post a couple times uh, last night on Jokic, and it was like, man, did I feel sorry for him? It's not fair to play that guy one-on-one in the post. He gets whatever he wants every time. But in, 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 his, te- in his rotations and what he's seeing in his communication, and he jumps out early on ball screens the way you're supposed to, he's so attentive to detail. And so cerebral on both ends. He's been a great pickup, but we haven't mentioned him yet. But I really like what he brings. Looney, as you mentioned, Wiggins and Clay are elite. Steph battles. He's not a great defender, but he does compete. He tries. And he never is, is like a guy that's not going to care about that. With right. with Peyton and Draymond, who weren't there, plus the guys off the bench, has the makings of a team that can absolutely win games defensively. And I thought they almost did it last night, despite their best three players going 15 for 42. Right. It was a that was a slog of a game for everybody last night. Although Steph Curry, you look up at the box sheet, six of thirteen from three, and I didn't think he got very many good looks, clean looks. Still goes six of thirteen. Um, let's talk about circle of trust for the Warriors here. They're, they're starting five. We know what they can do. They're phenomenal. So we got five guys. We talk about Draymond Green and Looney, and then Clay Wiggins and, and Steph. Those guys, you lock them in. I think Chris Paul's a proven circle of trust guy in a playoff series. You've got after that. I'm curious Sorry, where your next. I would, I would put I put Sarich in there. Sarich, Sarich is going to play consistently 18 to 20, 22 minutes every single night. They know he's never going to hurt them. He's always ready, and he spaces the floor as a shooter. So I would say Sarich would be included in that. So you have usually you need about I would say 11 guys in the regular season, and you need eight guys in the playoffs. 11 just because you need depth pieces, right? You need to, to be able to handle this or that. So, okay, you're already got up to seven guys that you would say are playoff circle of trust guys. That makes them a threat. Automatically, you start to look at it and say, that's seven guys you can trust. Who would be the next name to you at this moment of guys that you feel, if you had to start a playoff series, that's a guy that you're going to be able to give minutes to? Is it Gary Payton? Is it Kamika? 100% it's Payton. It's Payton, yeah. And, I, and, yeah. and in, their, in their view, he might even right now rank ahead of, of Saric. But I, th- I think no. you've got eight. They definitely trust GP. Um, now is when it starts to get dicey, right? Yeah. Jackson Davis, Moody, Kaminga. It's going to be a mixture of those guys on a given night, and whoever comes in and affects the game in the first half and looks ready to go and it's got the bounce and energy and makes some plays will probably get more minutes in the second half. And on a given night, one or two of those three guys will not play a ton of minutes. I think that's where they're at. I don't think they have full trust yet in any of those guys. Um, honestly, of the three of them, they probably have more trust right now in Moses Moody. I agree. Than, than either of the other two guys. But I don't think that that's something that's etched in stone. He played well last night, 10 points in 14 minutes. He was a plus six, played well. But I don't think that Steve Kerr and that coaching staff think to themselves, okay, we know what we're getting out of Moses Moody every night. They haven't moved on to that. So I think you got eight. They fully trust, and GP and Saric are going to get their 20 minutes even when they're not shooting well. That's right. the difference. Moody, Kaminga, yeah. uh, these guys, if they're if they're missing some shots and Kaminga missed a couple bunnies last night, they might look in another direction because I think they always think to themselves they're not ready to go. And yeah. and Steve Kerr immediately shortens the leash on those guys, and now that's, that's where you're at. And they're so important to them. So they're critical to their team's success. Let's see how that plays out. When you talk about those three guys and, and about being in the circle of trust, 
I think Kaminga is the highest upside play there. Like he's he's the most impactful when the things are good. He's the most impactful. But I think Moody of those three guys is by far the lowest mistake player. And that's that's really when you're talking about the eighth, ninth spot in a rotation, you're usually looking for low mistake, a guy that's going to consistently be in the right spots offensively and especially defensively. But we can shift our attention now to who's the more interesting player, at least in I think both of our opinion, and that is Jonathan Kaminga. You identified him before we started launch the show last week. You identified him as one of, if not the most interesting player coming into the year. And I have to agree with you because Kaminga represents a leveling up of the depth of this roster. He represents a guy that you would hope to, if you're the Warriors, you hope he becomes the sixth most important player on the roster, not just a guy that you're wondering if he's on the fringe. So where do you want to start with Kaminga to start breaking down his game? Oh my goodness! This isn't going to be good news for the Warriors fans. All right, now I'm not, I'm not, I'm not yeah. closing the book on them by any means. I have been as high on Jonathan Kaminga as anybody that does this for a living from the very beginning. I'm just, I was hoping here at the start of the year. And what are we? Uh, how many games in are we for the Warriors? Nine, I think nine. Uh, nine, nine games. Yep, nine um, games. You know, I, you know, I was going to say, well, small sample says, I, I hear you, but. When a guy evolves in that offseason, when he's this age, you kind of notice a dramatic difference at the beginning of the year. Man. And here's here's where he's still struggling for me. He misses too many shots around the basket he's supposed to make. Yep. That, let's, let's start with that, okay? So he's a guy that he's taken three and a half almost more shots per game this year so far. His field goal percentage has dropped from 52 to 42. Whew. Like you're getting you're most of it now he takes and he doesn't take a lot of threes. He takes two threes a game. So eight and a half of his shots are pretty much in the paint because he doesn't shoot mid-range shots. He's a guy that's at the rim in the paint or he's shooting a three. So you're talking about eight shots a game that are basically in the paint or at the rim, and he's shooting 42% from the field. And 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 look, I'm not talking about you know, these are all contested or I saw three of three shots at least last night that he has to put in the basket. They're right there for you. They're point blank. So this concentration level on those is a little disappointing for me that he's shooting 42% here at the start of the year is, is disappointing. The other area he struggles in when he gets a guy on his back that's smaller than him and the ball comes into him, his lack of patience and footwork to get what he wants is surprising 145 games into his career with all of the offseason work. And they got a great developmental staff in that organization. I don't understand if you got a 6'4 guy on you and he gets them all the time on switches. Yeah. How are you not able to pound the ball for three controlled dribbles, stay on balance, and then pivot one direction to the other and then basically overwhelm that guy with your athletic ability going toward the basket with balance and strength? He doesn't. His feet get twisted. He shoots it before he's ready. He doesn't back a guy down at all, and he spins off and takes some odd angled bank shot from off the lane. Those lack of patience plays, I thought I'd see a little bit more out of him now. He's got enough seasoning under his belt. That should come more natural to him because they want him to take the leap. They have they want to show confidence in him. He hasn't improved in that area. So I think for me, I'm still wondering, like, is the concentration level there? Um, I'm not closing the book, but right. I wanted to – more here at the first nine to 10 games of the season based on what I expected from him coming out of the offseason. 
I think it's pretty clear if you just watch their games that the Warriors don't fully trust him because he does yeah. still have kind of a tight leash in terms of he'll be out there and it's like, hey, they need him to buy some minutes. And if he doesn't play well, he gets pulled. Whereas if you have more trust in a guy, you ride the ups and downs. Sometimes his minutes get really, really low in, in, in big games. I think your point, though, is the most important one to me. He on paper, as, as what the idea of what Jonathan Kaminga is, is something that's so valuable to this team. The Warriors generate switches as well as anybody in the NBA because of how well they move off ball and you run Steph Curry around. It's so hard to chase him around. He gets mismatches nonstop. With his physical tools, that should be a real weapon to him. And this is why when you talk about the finishing rate at the rim. I actually think the finishing frequency at the rim is, is one of the things that is concerning to me. He only takes 21% of his shots in the, around the restricted area. That's a guy to me, and I don't know how much of this is team dynamic and how much of this is what target is he aiming at as a player? What is he trying to make himself into? Because to me, his best avenue to a great NBA career is to be an Aaron Gordon-type player that just constantly bullies guys inside and makes it impossible for you to switch. Uh, you know, you're going to punish the switches wherever they are. Right now, you can put a Fred Van Fleet on him. You can put an undersized guy on him and just force him into those tough jump hooks, and he'll settle for. Sometimes he'll set or settle for fallaways in the post against a guy six foot two. So for me, that's my big concern about him: is what a target is he aiming at, and why doesn't he? Why don't we think of him more of a bully on the offensive end? Completely agree with you, and I think that something else that bothers me about him, I don't understand. I and I kind of feel this way a lot of nights about Zion too, like you're you're a lot of times arguably the best athlete on the floor how if you're jonathan kaminga this month in the month of november he is averaging a rebound every nine minutes mm. okay so put that into perspective if this guy's playing starter minutes 36 to 40 minutes he's getting four boards yeah i mean and less than one offensive rebound how on a team that takes this many threes that's so centered around Clay and Steph, right? And what they're doing, a lot of long jump shots. My goodness, just be in the vicinity with all these long rebounds off the long misses, and you should be getting targeting three to four offensive rebounds every night if you're Jonathan Kaminga. And that's just the long ones. What about yeah. the ones where you actually use your athletic ability and go get something off the glass and maybe get a putback and help yourself out? So his rebounding numbers, like what is that? What does that speak to? He's obviously physically put together. He's got he's got great verticality off the floor. Is it lack of instincts for the ball? Is it lack of desire? You don't have to want to to go get it. There's no way his rebounding numbers should be three a night with that kind of athletic ability. I think it's all tied together. And it's 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 if he would show me growth there, hey, you know what? He's just not finishing right now. But man, oh man, is he attacking the glass and giving himself and his team opportunities? He's not doing that. And I say the same thing about Zion some nights when he's at the elbow or 18 feet and the shot goes up on the other side of the floor and he just turns and starts backpedaling back. And I'm going, are you kidding me? Who's keeping you off the offensive glass? And it's almost like you're conserving energy. If you don't get it, you don't want to have to run the floor to get back. Like, I don't mm -hmm. know, you know, what's going on with Kaminga, but that's another area of growth I think he can show. And I, I don't know how much they're pounding it in his head. Like, Jonathan, you know, 20 minutes, three rebounds isn't enough. We, you got to give us more than that. 
it's all kind of tied together. And, and right now, obviously, we're, we're both feeling, I think, the same way, underwhelmed, and I think the Warriors probably are as well. Even though, look, his scoring average is up to 12 points a game. He's playing more, a little bit more. He's scoring a little bit more. But there's nothing there to show to leap, and that's yeah. what we were looking for. What about the defensively? You know, what do you see from him this year? Where's he at, and, and what is his upside? What does he need to get to? One thing I do like about him, and it started really midseason last year, he he definitely is up for the challenge now. Like, he he – you can tell when he sees those Jason Tatum's of the world, the Kevin Durant's of the world, like LeBron's of the world. When those guys are coming up the floor with the ball, he want, he he wants that now. He's not going to shy away from that. They were they're not going to try to hide him anymore. Now he's got to be smarter. I think he 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 gets a little bit overly aggressive sometimes and commits fouls and takes himself out of the game or takes him off that player. So he's got a little bit smarter with that. But I do like the fact that he's up for it. Um, I think he's too upright, to be honest with you. I don't think he gets low enough to really be able to, to contain the ball laterally as well as he should based on his athletic ability. And I think that's just technique and, and getting more experience guarding that level player and reading them a little bit more. But the most encouraging sign is he doesn't run from that anymore. Like he, you know, or I shouldn't say that he ever did. They hid him from it. They don't hide him from that anymore, those matchups. This is your matchup. This is who you got. Then you got him. Doesn't matter. We're not going to figure out some scheme for you. Go guard that guy and get into him. And he is showing a willingness to do it. So I am encouraged by that. It's so important for the Warriors have maybe the best knockout punch in the NBA. Their starting lineup, obviously, is just so good. And if you get into a playoff series, you're going to want to play that group as many minutes as you can. To do that, you're going to have to trust other guys to be able to be out on the court in those other minutes so that you can keep them together. You don't, you can't afford to stagger a Draymond Green a whole bunch of minutes because now you're taken away from your best punch. So to me, that is what Kaminga represents, offensively and defensively. A guy that you could say, you know what, we're giving the starters a little four-minute rest here because we want to play them together down the stretch of the fourth quarter, and we can trust him. He doesn't have to win those minutes. But you have to make it so that you don't have to break your rotation, your preferred rotation in any given setting. And he's not there right now. In my opinion, he's not there right now. To your point, he's probably ninth or 10th in the circle of trust ranking. And I just think he needs to get up to 6th, 7th, somewhere in there by the time the playoffs start for me to think that the Warriors could compete with the top level of players in the Western Conference. Yeah, and I think even, I don't know, this is kind of telling for me sometimes, like even when questions are asked about Kaminga, you know, you don't get the impression that whoever's answering the question, whether it's a, a teammate or coaching staff or the front officer, maybe it's not like this super, you know, enthusiastic exuberance about where he's yeah. headed. You're seeing, you know what I mean? It's, it's, you don't get that. Like, yeah, you know, he's working, he's doing, you know, he's doing his thing and Jonathan's important to us. You know, it's like, okay, that you don't, you don't get that. And I, I, I want it so badly for him um, because I just see so much there uh, in a league, you know, and I said this earlier about Maxi, in a league full of quick guys, he stands out. In a league full of great athletes, some of the stuff he does stands out athletically. That gives you a great chance in this league. Now it comes down to, I think, what's beaten in your chest, what's between your ears, and then what kind of organizational support are you having to get better? And, and right now, he just turned 21. He's got, he still has time, but uh, man, he's going to be under the microscope for me pretty much all year. This is a tough question, Legs, but aiming at the right target to me is such a big part of team building when you get to the role players. Can you get your guys to do the role that you need them to do? Can Kaminga, if I'm Kaminga's agent or if I'm his friend, I'm saying, okay, they want you to defend, they want you to play bully ball. 
but those types of players are role players. You get pigeonholed into being a great role player and maybe you're looking at yourself saying, yeah, but I'm a star. I'm a number two or maybe even a number one. And if I accept that role, is this the best thing for me personally through my in my career? Do you see, is there any conflict there in your mind of what we both think he needs to be for the Warriors versus maybe what he wants to be to maximize his, you know, his potential as a player? Absolutely. You just asked the magic question. That is the magic question. That, that guys on really good teams when they're this young need to figure out. And look, you know, he's had a taste of winning and they won a yeah. championship, right? He's got that. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, you don't want to also be um, a, a more contributing player on a championship team than he was during that playoff run. Of course you do. But he's he's been tasting this style and they're in the mix every year and they already won a championship. He's getting a, getting a lot of that here early in his career. At some point, if they don't see the progression, Number one, they're they're going to think maybe we can find someone that fits this role a little bit better and a little bit more consistent for us. But it's and the other side of that is Jonathan Kaminga might be looking around when he's sitting at home and he's watching league pass, or he just played against one of these teams and goes, "Damn man, I could average eighteen in Houston." Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yep. I, so I hear what you're saying, and that is the magic question. Some guys, it hits them one day, and it hits them sooner. That like, you know what, there's more for me and it might not happen here, particularly as long as they're going to continue to try to win championships in the Steph Curry era, which they should until he starts showing decline, which he hasn't. There's they should every year be trying to do that. Right. He's not necessarily going to be fulfilled with his role. And that's a great question. When will that become a tipping point for Jonathan Kaminga and for the organization? And by the way, this is often phrased as it's there's like a right answer to that question for a player. Like there's this noble thing to agreeing to be less. And I think of Jeremy Grant, you know, he was in Denver, a team that was on the the up, and he chose to leave Denver for the same money and go to Detroit because it was, hey, I can be a role player here, but I want to spread my wings and see how good I can be. And I think there's a nobility even in that desire of you could be a cog in the machine, an important cog. But he wanted to know, can I be a number one option? Can I expand my game and do these different things? So I, to me, we always phrase this as he should agree to being the seventh best player on a championship team. But I understand why a player might think for themselves. I just wonder if I can be better than that in some way. So it's a tough question. And, and I think it does play into the equation here. We've got about five minutes legs. And I want to go quickly now to some teams that might be in trouble. And we're going to start with, I think, the most obvious one. The Memphis Grizzlies are one and seven out the gate. They have a one win that came at Portland. They played two games in Portland, only won one of them. They're one and seven. They don't get John Morant back for several more weeks. What's your degree? How how in trouble are the Memphis Grizzlies? Is it over? Are they cooked? Well, I think, look, when you've got a guy that good and special and explosive and electric, it's the face of your franchise kind of sitting in the wings. Yeah, you can't really necessarily write them off in an 82-game season. But the problem is, look at – we and we talked about this. What's their 12 really interesting teams in the West? And that's yeah. including San Antonio, who I don't – you know, I don't think they're going to be pushing anybody for, you know, for noise in the playoffs. But they're going to be somebody you're going to watch every night you have to take seriously. So if you dig yourselves – like this kind of hole, like what are your real prospects for getting him back, reincorporating him, which is going to take a little bit of time, everybody getting used to him again, um, you know, him finding the right pace because he's probably going to have a lot to prove when he first comes back and he's going to he's going to be maybe not even playing 
uh, right. smart basketball, right? That that could take some time. So yeah, when is that roster? Happen? Where does he fit in with Marcus Smart? Yeah. You know, like it's a different dynamic. You're in the second half of the year we're talking about now. And you, you know, you are 10, 12, 15 games under 500, like whatever you might be at that time. You've dug yourself too deep a hole. And, and that year, is it's not going to happen. You're not making a run out of the 10 spot through the West, right? You're just not. Right. So, yes, it's as Yogi Berra famously said, it gets late early out here. Uh, and I think that's where Memphis, that's where Memphis is right now. There you go. They match up with another team that might be in trouble, and that is the Los Angeles Lakers. They are three and five uh, at the time of recording this. They just lost to the Houston Rockets, which, by the way, Houston Rockets have some good wins under their belt. So this is, you know, that's not a terrible team. But nonetheless, the Lakers are a team that expected to be able to beat the Houston Rockets, um, to beat the Orlando Magics. You know, those of the world. They are three and five. Anthony Davis already getting banged up a little bit. When you watch them play, are they a team that is, in your opinion, what's the concern level there? Not nearly as much because everything about this team speaks to one thing, being physically right uh, late March into early April, getting ready for that stretch run. And they've proven they can come from yeah. a different spot, a deeper spot in the batting order and make it all the way right to the conference finals. They, they've shown that they can do that. Another thing you know, here early in the year. And I don't know, maybe he was pressing a little bit to start uh, because he got paid. Austin Reeves really struggled offensively to start the year. Now, he had, he's found his rhythm. He's starting to play great again. Um, but, you know, when you get out of the gate that slowly, you've got some guys miss nights. Um, when they look bad, they're atrocious because the regular season is just something that they've got to tolerate. They're not interested in it. They're just not. They're built for something different because of the makeup of their roster. So the nights that they don't have it, and last night was a great example, that's what happens. They're going to get steamrolled by some of these teams, even lesser teams. Not as worried about them because of the makeup of the top of their roster. And ultimately, they'll keep their head above water. They yeah. just want to be, be physically right when they get to the spring. And remember, by the way, who knows what they might do at the trading deadline. Look at the way they remade their roster last year and the right. difference that those guys made. As long as you have LeBron healthy, you have AD relatively healthy at the top of your roster, I'm not as concerned about the Lakers because they, they have something bigger in mind. I'm definitely not as concerned as I am with Memphis, where I kind of think Memphis might be cooked. But with the Lakers, here's the thing about what you're saying and where I, I think I disagree. The Lakers, yes, they need to be healthy at the end of the year. But I don't know if LeBron James and Anthony Davis have four months of playoff basketball in them. I think they have the four rounds. That's about it. If you have to sprint through the end of the season just to make it out of the play and into this or that, you're basically adding an extra month of playoff basketball to you know caliber basketball. So for me, I look at them and I go, okay, three and five. Obviously, it's not the panic button. But I do think they're a team that needs to be in that five, six range going into the home stretch. So it's not one of those things where LeBron's playing 38, 39 minutes every single night in March, leading into 40, 42 minutes in April. Really, really fair point. And when you look at the Western Conference, you know, these teams aren't going away. You know, you got obviously right. Denver at the top. I like Dallas better this year. Minnesota's a good team, man. Golden State, Oklahoma City has a lot of young talent. Now, Houston might be an outlier sitting there in the sixth spot at four and three. They're, I don't think they're going to – they're not going to be above 500 when this is all said and done. But then look right below them. Phoenix, New Orleans, Sacramento, the Clippers. I mean, so that's a great point. Like, if you're if you're going to 
you're going to have all these uneven performances and guys sitting and resting, and then you're going to try to turn it on in March to try to position yourself, you know, to make a run, it might be a little bit too late and you might have exhausted too much to get there. I think that's a very fair point because right now I know this. When they – the Knights, they haven't had it. You could go ahead and turn that thing at halftime. And they're, they're not – they're not – they're not – they're not rolling, rolling out of the grave and going to come right. run somebody down from 20 down in the second half, like right now, not this early in the year. They don't have that in their tank. So, yeah, I, I'm not as concerned as I am about Memphis, but look, when you look at some of these other teams and the starts they've had where we're kind of looking at them differently, Minnesota, Oklahoma City, Dallas really is also in that group, kind of going, wow, like, you know, the Lakers, they've got some teams that they're going to be looking up at. And, yeah. you know, the LeBron James mentality, they just think if he's on our roster, throw the ball in the air, we got a chance every night. And they're probably right. The last team going back to the Eastern Conference, the Cleveland Cavaliers, they are three and five. You know, they have a couple, you know, we would say good wins that win at New York when they played two games in a row in uh, against New York. That was a good win. They pick up a win against Golden State and they have a win against Brooklyn. They have a handful of home losses so far this year. They have not necessarily looked impressive. How in trouble are they? Uh, yeah, I think, look, I, I don't think they're in nearly as much trouble as any team in the Western Conference that's off to that kind of start, right? Because just look at what you're yeah. talking about. We don't think they're on the level of Milwaukee or Boston. At least I don't. I'm not speaking for you. We both, I think, earlier said we think Philadelphia is the team that looks most likely to kind of grab yeah. that third spot and, and like can go toe-to-toe with the, with the top two. After that, it's just like – it's just a random mix of teams, right, until somebody separates themselves. So you can sort of, you know – be stuck in the mud a little bit early, early in the year. And they look, they played also half their games without uh, Garland, which is a big deal. He's, you know, he's an all-star caliber guard in this league. They didn't have him. Mobley hasn't really been great offensively yet. I think there's a lot more there for them to grab. So I don't think you're as concerned because of the teams that you're talking about that you've got to sort of elbow with, you know, it's like the Knicks and the Miamis of the world and Toronto and like that next group of teams so I think Cleveland right now, it's too early to, to draw real definitive conclusions. The start hasn't been great. They've dealt with injuries. Um, and, and now let's see when they hit the next gear as we head toward the holidays, what does it look like in the Eastern Conference? Because we know who the top three are. They're, they just started out last night. I did not watch this game. I have not seen it. But they dropped Oklahoma City in the first of a four-game Western Conference road trip. They've got the Warriors coming up. They've got Sacramento. And they've got Portland. So they hit that West Coast. Those are all tough games. I mean, Portland, you would think, is an easier one, but it is the end of a four-game, you know, three-time zone shift for them. So those those are always tough to close out a road trip. So I think this is one where you look at they could lose all of those games, and then you're starting to get into the, the concerning territory. So this is, I think, a big test for them coming up. Legs, another fantastic show. Um, the the people watching this, you kind of see the rhythm of it. We're not just recapping games. Here's what happened, you know, the flow of it. We every game tells a story and we like to look at what the basketball story is from all of those games and go a little bit deep on the players and teams that are most interesting from there. So I've I've really enjoyed this rhythm we've established, Tim, and I've enjoyed these conversations. It's it's gives, I think, me and I have to imagine by extension, the audience, a lot to think about every night around the league. Hey, man, look, when I look at it. I'd be watching these games anyway. So to get a chance right. to come on and actually talk about it is just a bonus for me. 
We love the analysis. Everybody, thanks so much for watching. Don't forget to hit that like button if you're watching on YouTube or the subscribe button as well. And then whatever podcast app you listen to, Google, you know, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever, leave us a five-star rating. Be sure to subscribe and tune in every day as we try to grow this show. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you guys tomorrow. Like the mayor, 